Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Why Though? A personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is episode 5, Sing the Sorrow by AFI. I have a complex relationship with this album. I suppose that is what most people would call a guilty pleasure. But the reasons for such lingering guilt as I have about enjoying this record are complicated and possibly not obvious to anyone who is not a record store guy. Sadly, I am a record store guy, so I can't just enjoy things. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As that intro suggests, I bought this record myself, though I couldn't tell you where or when. I hypothesize that it was at Princeton Record Exchange and probably in the 2004 range, but I have no clear evidence for this beyond probability and some elimination. In terms of time, it was released in 2003, and I probably didn't buy it at release. In terms of the store, this is, like, not the kind of thing that you would buy at albums. So that makes Princeton a strong contender. That said, I also could have purchased it at That's Entertainment in Worcester, or even a record store in Boston or Northampton. Who knows? As I telegraphed last time out, AFI is a band originally from Southern California that emerged from the scene something like two or three generations after the adolescence. In those few generations, the California punk scene had gone from remote outpost to influential tastemaker within the genre, in no small part due to this company town called Hollywood that you might have heard of. The influence of surfing and skating culture had a big impact on the genre in general, though this had little direct impact on AFI. More importantly was the fact that, in the early 90s, a slew of bands from the area gained major national mainstream radio play. Notably, Green Day was the first, but for our purposes it's more important to mention Rancid and The Offspring, as those bands retained strong links to the scene around San Francisco, which I recognize as Northern California, but bear with me. And this is where AFI had by then relocated. Members of Rancid helped AFI record their first album, after which they were signed by Nitro Records. Nitro Records is owned by the lead singer of The Offspring, and was created to help promote California punk bands. For much of the mid-90s, AFI were sort of protégés to The Offspring, for better or for worse. This has become less obvious as The Offspring's popular impact has faded over the years, but at the time, they were sort of mini-me's. This album was recorded as they transitioned off the Nitro label, and very much is no longer in the shadow of The Offspring. Beyond that bit at the start, there really isn't that much interesting to say about their career in terms of drama or fun stories beyond the music itself, which I have to say is extremely refreshing after the pressure cooker nightmare of Adam Ant's history and the... whatever the heck the adolescents are. AFI has been making music together since 1991, with only one major personnel change that we will get to, and they are still at it. God bless them. 
That said, the musical evolution of the band in that time is interesting and worth some discussion here, since this is the only AFI record I own. If the show goes on long enough that I get to the CDs I own, I may have to recap this later, but I think we can cross that bridge when we get to it. In any case, AFI started out as a pretty much straightforward hardcore punk band. Capitalized H, capitalized P, capitalized B. The 1995 album, Answer That and Stay Fashionable, which I own on CD, was their first real album and is very much in this straight-ahead hardcore oeuvre. And it is, you know, fine. I like hardcore, but there are musically more interesting albums out there in that genre. The album is fast, basically non-melodic, and that's kind of it. The lyrics are a bit clever, but I was honestly disappointed with this one. This was also their first real album, and they worked in this vein for a few years. Then in 1999, their guitarist decided to move on, one of the few personnel changes in the band's history. At the time, everyone in the band shared a very squalid apartment, but since they were out on tour a fair amount, they allowed their friends to squat there when they were out of town. This included one Jade Puget, a younger guy who was a fan of the band, played guitar in a bunch of local bands, and was generally just kind of an acquaintance and scene personality, hanger-on kind of person. You know the kind of guy. In an interview about the event that I saw later, Puget remembers being asked to come down and talk to the band one day, and was pretty sure that they were going to be kicking him out of the apartment. Instead, they said that the guitarist had left and they would like him to fill in. And eventually that became an official thing and he started participating in songwriting. So as I said, Puget and the lead singer and songwriter, uh, Davey Havoc, began writing together and formed a strong artistic partnership that ended up taking the band in a very different direction from where they had been going previously. Actually, that's a bit of an understatement. Their next album was called Black Sails in the Sunset, and I don't own this album, but I own the follow-up All Hallows EP, and it is very, very, very different from Answer That and Stay Fashionable. To my ears, it's different in a very good way. I have to say, um, All Hallows EP is one of my favorite things that I own. It's short, it's four songs, every single one is perfect. But as for what changed, all of a sudden the band starts using melodies, with really strong harmonies from the backup singers and lush production values. You know, lush for a punk band anyway. The lyrics took a hard turn to cover darker themes, like as in Halloween movie type dark, though with strong emotional content. Think more um, cosmic horror than slasher movie? I spoke last time out about how there was this existing undercurrent of horror punk songs in the California punk scene. So this wasn't entirely unprecedented, but what AFI was doing was really very different from songs like Beheaded or whatever that had happened before. Earlier songs in this oeuvre tended to talk about bad things happening matter-of-factly, almost making fun of the event in the audience for thinking it was bad. Again, very much in line with sort of B-horror movies. By contrast, AFI was using the horror movie imagery as a metaphor for more relatable emotional experiences, like not fitting in and feeling isolated. For example, in the song Total Immortal, which is off the All Hallows EP again and is probably one of the most perfect songs in history, the narrator, who may be a ghost or is in some other way undying, feels isolated from the rest of humanity and is filled with rage at some sort of betrayal that they feel has set them apart from everyone else. Of course, this is sort of a relatable feeling, even if you are not a ghost, or the main character in a Slavic folktale. Incidentally, the song also has this really amazing bass line that, while not particularly complicated, just makes use of fast play and extended pauses in weird places to create this insane feeling of energy and release that just anchors the entire song to the ground. 
So, so good. While every album by AFI is reportedly very different, this turn towards melody and gothy lyrical modes has continued to the present day, and I think they are a much better band for it. This view is not without controversy, which is where we come to the weird feelings of guilt that are associated with my appreciation of this album. While every album by AFI is reportedly very different, this turn towards melody and gothy lyrical modes was more different than usual, and in many ways has just sort of continued to the present day. At the same time, the lead singer Davey Havoc grew out his hair into long, lustrous, flowing locks, and the band started playing in dark makeup and black clothing. These changes, in terms of lyrical content and stage presence, were not without controversy. Many longtime fans, reportedly including Dexter Holland of The Offspring and, more importantly, the head of Nitro Records, did not like or understand these changes. This led to friction with the label that eventually led to them leaving during the recording of this album, the one that we're talking about today. Now, it's the timing of these changes that makes this story interesting, and which brings us back to my lingering disquiet about enjoying this album. The issue is that 1999 wasn't just some random time for a band to start playing melodic hardcore and start wearing black makeup at shows. This is the time when emo went from being a highly nonspecific genre title used in the dark corners of the punk scene to being a major mainstream genre that was taking over TRL Live. For those unaware, let us have a brief discussion of the genre of emo and why it is relevant. Emotionally driven punk rock, emo for short, grew out of the DC hardcore scene in the early 90s around acts like Rites of Spring and arguably Fugazi, although their fans would hate me saying that. It's nearly impossible to characterize the scene by sound, though the early days were very much more in line with hardcore punk than what would come later. The best summary of what happened is probably something like this. A lot of people in the hardcore scene sort of realized that they didn't need to be hyper-masculine anymore, and just continually be angry all the time, that there were other emotions that they could talk about in their songs. So they started experimenting with various things, in terms of lyrical content and eventually in terms of sound as well. It is sort of a second birth of post-punk, except in America, with a much more solid early scene surrounding it, which gave it a little bit more longevity. Regardless of how it started or where, by the late 90s it was a nationwide phenomenon, and had a huge gamut of bands working in the genre, at least according to outside observers who were trying to put people in these genre titles. The bands themselves were sometimes a bit wary of the label, especially once it got popular, but at the time, everyone from melodic folk punk bands like Dashboard Confessional to the sonic buzzsaw that was at the drive-in were being called emo bands. If you don't get those references, there's going to be an extensive list of YouTube links in the show notes because I'm just referencing all over the place. So there's footnotes. There's lots of footnotes. The one thing that united all these bands that were being called emo was that they talked about emotional topics, I guess, and they did not allow toxic masculinity to limit their songwriting or stage presence. And while not all these bands are my cup of tea, reducing limitations on creativity is basically a good thing when you're talking about music composition. Less so when you're talking about murder. Anyway, then came 1999-2000. Pop-punk bands like Blink-182 were doing well on the charts, and inevitably a few of the emo bands with relatively radio-friendly sounds sort of broke through as well. Maybe even by accident, as you know, the record labels accidentally put them on because they thought they were a pop-punk band. A great example of this would be Jimmy Eat World. 
Then radio executives noticed this emo thing was super marketable and could be used to move tons of accessories, and suddenly every worthless two-bit pop-punk act in America was being told by their managers to wear eye makeup and dressing black. In some cases, they made the effort of changing the lyrical content of their songs, but usually they just continued playing the same pop-punk trash they'd been playing before, just now in eyeliner. This produced a backlash, and all the bands that had been quietly working and happily letting people call them emo before suddenly hurried to rebrand themselves as indie bands as rapidly as possible to avoid being confused with Sum 41. So, what do we do with AFI's transformation in this same period? At the same time that every two-chord mall punk band in the country was slapping on eyeliner and trying to sing in key for the first time in their lives, here's AFI, a stalwart hardcore band, really, really far outside of pop punk, I have to say, suddenly playing shows in dresses and singing about their personal torments. In harmony, no less. Was this some kind of cynical cash grab? Had AFI sold out? In the minds of many listeners to punk music and alternative music styles, they were kind of tainted by the timing of this change. But I think it's also fair to say that fans and critics, not to mention the band themselves, have maintained some distance between AFI and their emo contemporaries. As nonspecific and broad as the emo category always was, I've very rarely seen AFI put there. Part of this may be that AFI's musical shift wasn't towards sad pop-punk music, it actually added depth and skill to their work, which just kind of made their work richer instead of being more dumb. That's an important distinction. The makeup in this case was not being used just to look cool, Havoc was genuinely pushing at the boundaries of gender norms. In short, everything they were doing was actually making them better in a way that other bands were not getting better by doing the same things. And it should just be said that if you listen to the music with some specificity, the music doesn't sound like the emo music that was popping up at that time sounded like. It sounds nothing like vacuous small punk, or at least not much. It seems much more influenced by various genres of goth music than emo music. There's not much here about how, you know, dad is mean and won't let me go to the big dance. At the same time, this change in direction saw the album sales of the band start a steady upward trend. Today's record, Sing the Sorrow, would be their best-selling album to date, and as far as I know, it still is, and it allowed them to finally move out of their squalid rented house and get separate normal apartments. On that basis alone, punk purists have some room for skepticism. It's also fair to say that, as emo has faded away, Havoc has done a lot less with his gender-bending stage persona, reverting back to a somewhat minimalist, traditionally masculine, dark punk rock look. We're going to get more into what the music sounds like when I get to talking about the album, but there's a big sort of elephant in the room here that I have been thinking about a lot since I started working on this review, and which I didn't think about quite so much at the time. And that is that with 20 years of hindsight, the way that toxic masculinity played some role in the broader backlash against emo in general, and feelings about AFI specifically, even for me. Now, I should say, I was always a defender of underground bands that were described as emo. I actually liked most of them. I didn't like the uh, Sum 41s of the world or the Good Charlottes, but the other bands that had been called emo before suddenly turned into a mall punk genre, they're actually often very good. And thus, they're generally described as indie punk bands today. I think that even at the time, I was aware that just the label of something as emo made it seem girly and therefore lesser, and that this had nothing to do with the quality of the music, which is stupid. 
Most of the stuff on the radio was god-awful, but like, Jimmy Eat World was and remains a pretty solid band. Just because they have a song or two that high school girls liked to dance to doesn't make us manly punk rockers too good for them. In terms of AFI, I always have this cognitive dissonance. I liked the music, but the style was just too close to hot topic punk for my taste. And in retrospect, I'm not sure how much of that could be chalked up to some sort of feelings being generated by my discomfort at Havoc's open crossing of traditional gender norms. I remember in particular there was one interview where he and Robert Smith from The Cure compared notes on their favorite kind of eyeliner. I found that interview very annoying and silly, because makeup is silly, and the obsession with surface beauty distracts us from important things. Man. Or with the benefit of hindsight, because I saw girly things as frivolous. Obviously, I've changed my views in that regard. 20 years will do that. But then, hating Hot Topic wasn't just about my scorn for teenage girls. At the time, I saw it as a principled stand against corporate influence in music and the horrors of the American mall. And it's worth saying that, at the time, it wasn't just bands in makeup that I thought were less serious and less important. I really tended to think that any band that wasn't actively singing about the Kyoto Protocols was more silly and less important. That's just the kind of kid I was, and to some extent I still feel that way. Every mall that closes and gets knocked down is, in my opinion, a victory for decency and sanity. And I do prefer music that's about important things. It's just that now important things includes feelings about life, the universe, and the meaning of everything. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't know how much of my lingering feelings about AFI are due to this subconscious gender bias in my youth. At this point, I think that stuff is kind of cool. But I do sort of think of AFI as whiny and unserious bandwagon jumpers when I see the record on the shelf, even though when I actually put it on, I always love their music. And it's been 20 years, and Havoc no longer sports long flowing locks, and they're still out there playing melodically rich punk music for packed theaters. So at some point, do I need to just let all this go? What I can say is that if there was some sort of commercial incentive to the band's change in direction, they sort of hide it well. For one thing, having a change in your artistic direction create friction with your record label is usually not a great way to uh, forward your career. On the other hand, it's pretty clear that they weren't really going for, you know, huge mainstream commercial success. The band says that they were kind of weirded out by suddenly being able to afford hygienic housing. So it, it just seems unlikely to me that they had some kind of grand strategy to become an emo band and sell more records. I think it's more likely that there was something going on in the zeitgeist, something that made emo bands popular with the kids and had so many bands sort of trending in an emo direction before they started selling records at Hot Topic. 
And then maybe when Havoc sort of had his writing situation jarred by a new, slightly younger songwriting partner on the team, this kind of tapped a new vein of creativity for the band. In many ways, the underlying things that caused the birth of Emo in the first place were very prescient for this band. They were a hardcore band that had been doing hardcore for like five years at this point, and maybe that vein had run dry. Hardcore in general can sometimes be a bit of a creative cul-de-sac, although, again, not always. I do like hardcore. This new direction maybe allowed them more freedom and creativity, all of which just happened to suit the zeitgeist of the time. After all, and like I said, it's not like AFI sounds like a mall punk emo band. They really don't. They sound like something very different. So maybe they just found their groove and I should let myself enjoy their music. At the same time, well, it's about time that I just got to talking about the album. Sing the Sorrow came out in 2003, the second full album after their shift towards gothy hardcore. On vinyl, it is a two-record set and was mostly well-received. I believe it's their best-selling album to date, and is generally well-regarded critically. It is everything I love and am embarrassed about in terms of AFI. How to describe this? Okay, to me, I think there's three things generally that I want to talk about going on here. There's the stuff that I genuinely like. There is stuff that's a little melodramatic and cinematic, which I don't love, but can understand in terms of the theming of the album. And then there are elements that seem oddly but non-specifically generic. Side A of the first record is very much sort of on the cinematic side, so let's talk about that aspect first. The opening track starts with creepy, atmospheric sounds moving into sad songs about not fitting in and cosmic horror. I will say, I roll my eyes a bit at this, but the album is set up as a sort of overarching experience in which the band is telling scary stories that are actually about life, man. By the end of the second track, The Leaving Song Part 2, which is before The Leaving Song, because subverting expectations, I guess, by the end of that song, I'm mostly won over. These cinematic theming elements return from time to time, but they're mostly not a big deal until the last track of the album, so it, it isn't too distracting. And arguably, as much as I don't love these elements, they do contribute to making the album feel like a unified whole, which works really well here in some ways. Singing a bunch of disconnected songs about feeling helpless in a sort of sing-songy tone could potentially get ridiculous, the theming elements help draw you in and sort of suspend your disbelief and self-conscious acceptance of the songs, and just let you accept the music as it is. When listening to the album fresh, this all works really well for me, and I tend to focus on the things I like. And what are the things I like? Okay, this album has a really fun combination of sort of unstoppable energy and dynamic variety, and a real sense of melody. The album can feel all over the place, and I mean that in a good way. The energy is kept high by very generous beats per minute, and everything from the song structure to the tone color is really up for grabs. This is used to create the album's atmosphere while still serving the purposes of each song individually. While I don't like this album as much as All Hallows EP, you really can't deny that this is a band that had sort of hit their stride and are throwing everything and the kitchen sink and a few pieces of more easily breakable plumbing at their songwriting process. So there isn't too much reliance on the four chords of pop, is what I'm basically saying. And it all just, it all sounds good. Havoc's signature high tenor, maybe it's even a soprano, rings clear and beautiful across the record. As has been true in every album since Black Sails, the backup vocals from the rest of the band are equally well-delivered and thought through. Often they are used in a call-response type of mode that helps drive the record and makes it more than one vocalist just whining about his feelings. It creates an atmosphere of participation and universality that could easily be missed from an album in this oeuvre. 
Despite the speed and energy of the songs, they are rhythmically fairly sophisticated for, you know, a punk band. And they use shifting time changes and dynamics and furtherance of the story being told by the songs. The guitar work is certainly not neglected, and there's a ton of wonderful musicality at play, which just shows how much Jade Puget brought to the group when he joined in 1998. The, the drums are great, the bass lines are great, hell, even my cat likes it. Duncan has been conspicuously going to sleep on top of the speaker every time I put this album on. All that said, upon repeated listens, cracks do sort of appear in the structure of the album for me that might be more obvious to others, or less obvious depending on their background and their taste in music. This is where we get into the sort of stuff I labeled as generic, for lack of a better word, but it can be sort of hard to say what I mean here. To take the easy stuff first, there's a line where melodically rich music sort of tips over into sing-songy music for children, like nursery rhymes. There are places on this album where they ride that line, and where it lands, on which side of that line it lands, may be down to personal choice. I think it stays on the good side, but your mileage may vary. I could see the other side of the opinion on that. But my issues go a bit further than sing-songy melody stuff. Maybe this anecdote will help get at what I'm trying to say. The first time I was at a Warped Tour event, and I saw a band pogoing around the stage in unison to the beat of one of their more popular songs, and then, you know, a few songs later they did crowd participation stuff where, like, one side of the audience sang one thing and the other side of the audience sang the other thing, and then, you know, sort of the band members would run around and play together for certain songs and do that stuff. Well, you know, that, that's just awesome. That's just, they clearly have put some thought into their stage work. Great. I had a good time at this show. The second time I saw a band do exactly the same things, uh, like with down to the same dance moves, I thought it was weird. By the fifth time I saw that happen, it was pretty clear that some management company was having these bands choreograph their stage shows, and moreover, they were being really lazy about it. They were just using the same choreography for every pop punk band. It might not be obvious at a normal show, but when all the bands were together at one massive festival event, it kind of became painfully obvious. Like, you'd think they would have thought this through. To be clear, none of the individual things that the bands are doing are bad. Coordinated pogoing is, is always fun. Everyone likes audience participation stuff. That's cool. But when the bands are just rehashing the same stuff over and over again without any creativity, it undermines the effect, because... No, they didn't actually think through what they were going to do for their stage show. They didn't craft this performance. They just, someone gave them a piece of paper that told them what to do and they did it. And this is rock and roll, you know? This is supposed to be about spontaneity and raw emotion. I know it's never going to be entirely be that, but I'm not naive, but having it be so obvious like that is a real problem. The point is, when I see someone do something good once, that's great. If I see everyone doing the same good thing, it is no longer a good thing, and it is, in fact, a bad thing. So the stuff I have issues with are in this weird kind of twilight area. It's entirely possible that they only come off as generic if you spent a whole lot of time listening to pop punk and emo in the early aughts and late 90s. At some times when I'm listening to it, it's like there's an album's worth of wild and chaotic and seemingly clever musical choices that somehow might have been used somewhere else first, but I can't quite put my finger on where. But then maybe I just feel this way because I've listened to this album a dozen times while working on this episode. I will admit, none of this bothered me at all in the front of my brain when I first re-listened to the album. 
it was honestly a huge relief to listen to this album after Adam Ant and the Adolescents and all that. It was exciting and fast and felt good on my ears. It felt like coming home, despite not being an album I'd listened to all that much. Maybe this familiarity came from this album basically being a dynamic greatest hits of 90s punk? But I, I just can't pin it down. I can't say where these, what songs this came from. I can't pick out any band they directly sound like. Maybe, maybe Coheed and Cambria? But they certainly aren't as ridiculous as Coheed and Cambria. There are maybe some elements of new metal, but they don't sound awful. It's more like they took key, very good elements from like every single pop-punk, pop-rock, and new metal band that gained any buzz at all from 1995 to 1999 and just distilled it down into its purest essence. The final form is wonderful, especially at high volume. God help me, I love listening to this album. It's just somehow not quite as surprising or interesting as I think the album wants to be. I don't know if any of that makes sense. The album packaging is sort of part and parcel of the whole experience. It's a huge breath of fresh air after the minimal to the point of absurdity entries that we've seen in our last few reviews, but there is almost too much going on in this one. The packaging was a bit of a departure for the band as they had worked with the same artist for the last few albums. Those older albums have sort of a kind of a Peanuts Halloween special type comic artwork, which is preserved in a few spots but is mostly absent here. Instead, the album is made to look like a hardcover book, with a red logo of the band and album name on the front. This logo is actually a callback to that earlier style on the previous albums, and is in the form of a small lozenge showing leaves in the old style from that, those previous records, but in this case as a monochromatic red rather than being multicolored. On the back, there's a circle that shows a similar red monochromatic image of the sea, a callback to the Black Sails album cover. It's worth noting, uh, three versions of this album artwork were produced. I have the red, which was the original pressing. The white version is more common now, and there was a very limited pressing of black, which was sold only at shows. Overall, I really like the album art on the outside. It looks fancy, but in a classy way, and it integrates a lot of elements that tie the packaging to the music and to the band's recent past. Inside, everything works a little less well for me. I will give them credit for having lyrics for all the music on the records with text printed in a way that you can read and scan with the words. But, you know, the fact that I now consider this a talking point is itself a humorous comment on the places that we have been recently with Why Though. Anyway, the lyrics are printed on custom-made sleeves, which I always appreciate. Beyond the sleeves, however, the art is a somewhat clumsy attempt at metatextuality, with handwritten lyrical notes that are basically illegible, sort of superimposed on top of overexposed black-and-white or sepia-toned pictures of the band. This is all kind of meh, and it's a bit too clean for the old book aesthetic of the rest of the packaging. It's also oddly dated. I seem to remember a lot of new metal bands doing this kind of thing around the same time. On the other side, there are lyric notes placed with anatomical drawings of animals. This works better for me, and the juxtaposition of a viper in the notes for record one and a rabbit on record two brings a nice predator-prey interplay in the artwork theming that fits into the tone of the album. Just get rid of those sepia-toned pictures, they look horrible. This album came out in 2003, and I have spent every year since not being entirely sure how I feel about it. On the one hand, I love it, and it's very fun to listen to. On the other hand, there are all these old hang-ups from high school still nagging at the back of my brain. Some have been easy to let go. Some just stay sitting there, poking at the back of my brain, reminding me of some sort of ineffable issue I might have with this album that I can't quite put my finger on. 
Ultimately, that image is entirely in keeping with the spooky themes of this album. Maybe this was all some sort of 3D chess by the band. Seems unlikely. In any case, I've enjoyed listening to the album again in order to write this review. And of the albums I've reviewed, I suspect this is the one most likely appeal to appeal to you as well. If you like rock pop music, but were not neckbeard deep in 90s punk scene, it's probably worth your time to give it a listen. You probably weren't overexposed to some of these elements the same way I was. I suggest, and I, I mean this sincerely, I do suggest listening to this at a higher volume than you would usually use. It really brings out a lot of the musical choices that the band made that might be buried in the production value. That's something I didn't mention before. It's very glossy production value, and that, I say that just in general. It's not for a punk band. This is a glossy album. And again, that's kind of a relief after, you know, the adolescence, but possible they went too far. That might be one of the issues here. Punk bands shouldn't be glossy. In any case, I certainly won't go so far as to say you should own this on vinyl. We were well into the era of autotune being used in the background in the studios, and there are a few points where I think it was definitely used, and that sort of gets shown up more on the vinyl than it probably would in a digital format. All the same, the album mostly sounds good. Most of the stuff is clearly analog, so it sounds great for the most part. I'm glad I own it, and it has been a joy listening to it. I would recommend that you listen to it and maybe even buy some of the music for yourself. Possibly on CD, possibly MP3, whatever floats your boat. Just, you know, no need to go buy this on vinyl. And with that, let us close the book for now on AFI. Next time out, we will finally get away from the punk genre as we turn to the soundtrack of the film The Virgin Suicides by the band Air. As usual, I will post links in the show notes. Don't forget to like and review us on iTunes. As a show with a name that starts with a letter near the end of the alphabet, and which is about an insanely obscure and esoteric topic, reviews on your podcatcher of choice are really our only hope for public exposure. So, enjoy listening to Air, and as usual, I hope you find the answers that you seek in your own record collection. Postscript. I've got a uh, very special episode of Why Though over on the Agora Podcast Network podcast feed as part of the annual Agoraphobia uh, extravaganza. I got mine up as the first episode in there, so it's going to be a few episodes back from current. But it is a Halloween episode about the uh, a record that I happen to own from the Small World ride. It's a fascinating story and get you in the mood for the season. Though, due to the fact that I'm posting this at 10.49 p.m. on Halloween, um, it might be too late. But, you know, most people, most people are cool with that anyway, so go check it out.